Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is an exciting one, Anthony Appia. He is one of the great philosophers of our time, author of a number of incredible books, but most centrally for our discussion here, Cosmopolitanism, which is a defense and an explication of an idea that I think it is fair to say has come under a lot of fire recently. Um, Apia is also a philosophy professor at New York University. He is the author of the Ethicist column for the New York Times, which we talk a little bit about. And he's just a, a fascinating, brilliant, cultured individual. You'll, you'll, you'll hear in this discussion, he talks in these sort of elegant, beautiful paragraphs in a way very few people are able to do. Uh, we, we talk about cosmopolitans, what it means, what kind of moral responsibility it puts on you, uh, what it means we owe to one another, why it has become such a bad word in particularly American politics recently, but of course over many, many, many decades and possibly more than that. We talk about sort of modern ethical dilemmas, including the ethical dilemma of working for the Trump administration, uh, even if you are not really sure you agree with what it is doing and how it is acting, which is a, a dilemma many people are dealing with right now as we speak. Uh, this was a lot of fun as a conversation. Um, he, again, is just a very, very, very smart guy. Before we get to, to the discussion today, quick plug uh, for I Think You're Interesting, Todd Vanderhoof's excellent cultural podcast. He has probably the guest I am most excited about so far, Alan Yang, who's a co-creator of Master of None with Aziz Ansari. He's a writer on Parks and Rec. He's a very brilliant, very funny guy. Uh, I'm a huge Masters of None fan, so I'm particularly excited about this particular episode. You can find I Think You're Interesting by Todd Vanderhoof wherever you find your podcast, including wherever you're finding this podcast. Uh, you might also want to check out our other podcast, The Week where we do a lot of policy and politics. We've gone to twice a week now because there is just that much to talk about. And that too, you'll find wherever you find your podcasts. So without further ado, here is Dr. Appia. Anthony Appia, welcome to the podcast. Very nice to be here. It's a, it's a thrill to have you here. So I was excited to, to do this because this is a, an era in which the word cosmopolitan has become something of a slur, in which the idea that there are too many cosmopolitans has engendered a, a real backlash and, and potentially a new moment in American and in some ways in, in Western European politics. So I thought I'd ask, what does cosmopolitan mean to you? Well, cosmopolitan has been a slur quite often. After all, it was one of the favorite slurs of uh, Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler. So it has a long history of being used in a negative way. Rootless cosmopolitans were the enemies of everything. Uh, in the 1930s in a bunch of places. So uh, we cosmopolitans are used to being slurred about and slurred at. But I think that the core of cosmopolitans is just two simple ideas. One which is shared with lots of people, for example, the Pope or the chief rabbi, is that uh, everybody has some kind of moral responsibility for everybody, that we're human beings are all morally interconnected, that we we can't abstain from moral responsibility in relation to anybody. It may not be very demanding, this moral connection if somebody's far away, uh, but it's always there. It's never the case that you can say about a human being, that person is morally irrelevant. But I think every decent person holds a view something like that. But the second view is that people are, people are entitled to be different from each other, and that's kind of great, that, that we don't want everybody to become the same for a couple of reasons. I mean, one reason is that people start out different, and they're entitled to make their own way in the world. And if they want to be remain different, that's fine. We all come with different genes and different environments and, and different histories. And um, that's likely to make us humans produce different results. And that's fine, provided we recognize the first thing, which is that we have moral responsibilities to everybody. So the ways of being different are limited by the fact that you can't be different in a way that means that you abuse the rights uh, or ignore the interests of other people. So my slogan is cosmopolitan is universality plus difference, plus an acceptance. And indeed, usually a celebration 
of difference. That is, cosmopolitans are kind of interested. It's not just that it's okay for other people not to be like us. It's kind of cool that other people aren't like us and that the world is full of uh, people who, um, you know, people who don't like baseball as well as people who do. Uh, people, the Sunnis and Shia, uh, Catholics and Protestants, um, Jews and Gentiles. This is all cool. And in fact, cosmopolitan Gentiles are interested in the religious lives of Jews, just as cosmopolitan Jews are interested in the religious lives of Gentiles, and so on. So I think those are the core thoughts. The core thoughts are, yes, everybody matters. We, we, we have to worry about everybody. But no, that doesn't mean everybody has to be the same. And as a sort of coda to the second point, uh, let's all let's let's enjoy each other's differences. So let's draw then the picture of the rootless cosmopolitan a little bit, because I think it is, is interesting to contrast that vision, which I think most people hearing would not hear a lot to disagree within, though I recognize the implications go further than, than, than people sometimes realize. But the idea of the cosmopolitan, as you say, has been – it's a long-time slur and, and not just a slur. It is something people genuinely feel discomfort with, the, uh, the idea that their own countrymen would feel as much brotherhood potentially with those in another nation as they do with themselves. So paint for me the respectable version of the discomfort with cosmopolitanism, not the one that means Jewish, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right. which it, it is meant at, at different points, but but the one that we experience in politics all the time in a, in a reasonable mm. way. Good. So you'll notice that nothing I said was inconsistent with holding what I also hold, which is that we're uh, entitled to, to be uh, partial as opposed to impartial. That, mm -hmm. uh, from the fact that everybody matters, it doesn't follow that I have to give toys to your kids as well as mine. It just follows that I mustn't abuse your children, but I'm entitled to have a preference for my own children, my own family, and I think for my own town, my own country, my own uh, religious uh, community and so on. I'm entitled to have preferences. It's just that those preferences are not uh, consistent, uh, have to be consistent with our basic moral uh, duties to everybody. So if you're the kind of cosmopolitan, and there have been cosmopolitans like this, and I'm, I'm not with them. If you're the kind of cosmopolitan who thinks that it follows from the fact that everybody matters, that therefore you should be rigorously impartial, that you should treat your fellow countrymen exactly the same as you would treat a foreigner, uh, then I think you're making a mistake. And the mistake, in fact, is built into – it's a mistake because of the nature of cosmopolitanism. Because if, if we celebrate the fact that people are doing different things, then surely the fact that we are doing something distinctive is also something to be celebrated. And indeed, we should have a special feeling about the – form of difference that we represent, using various we's, uh, because, um, because it's, as it were, the, a foundational thought of this, of this way of going on, that um, human beings should be living distinctive forms of life. And, then, and to live a distinctive form of life is to be um, engaged with it in a special way, to think of it as yours. So when a certain kind of um, what you might call a ruthless cosmopolitan as opposed to a ruthless one. When a sort of ruthless cosmopolitan insists no partiality, we shouldn't be no preference for your own people, no preference for uh, Catholics if you're a Catholic, no preference for Americans if you're an American, no preference for philosophers if you're a philosopher, then I think they're just making a mistake. And it's a mistake that, as it were, misunderstands the character of the fundamental impulse of cosmopolitanism, which is to think that people are – it's valuable for people to be engaged with a form of life that's their own and that that's what we – looking across cultures, that's what we see in other people is their engagement with their own way of doing things, which we, we respect. And if they're willing to let us witness it or even participate in it, we're, we're grateful. But we understand that they have the right – in virtue of their entitlement to be partial, they have the right to exclude us. So when the Amish say they don't want us to come and witness their form of life, I think that's something that a cosmopolitan should respect. If, if the, if the ultra-Orthodox in Jerusalem don't want me wandering through their community, okay, it's, it's their right to have a community of their own. It seems to me that one of the dividing lines in this debate comes from how you see the downstream consequences of cosmopolitanism and, and particularly how much you see this kind of, let's say, reduced partiality, right? Because I don't think there are too many truly ruthless cosmopolitans, but there are varying levels of what is my uh, moral obligation to a Syrian refugee, right? Different people have different views on that. And there is a deep dividing line, it seems to me, around the idea of whether resources, jobs, respect, status are zero-sum or not. 
Um, there are folks who, I mean, I think immigration is a very big dividing line in America right now. And, and, and part of that debate is between people who on the one hand say, um, we owe things to our, our neighbors to the south, but also they are not taking things from us by coming here. And others who say it might be that ideally we would owe things to our neighbors to the south, but you know what? There aren't enough jobs in my community and there isn't enough status in my country and they are taking things from me in coming here. And so part of what pulls people uh, apart, you can imagine two people who have the same level of respect for or, or feeling of moral obligation to a, a poor refugee from El Salvador. But if one has a different view of what it costs them to let that person in than the other or a Syrian refugee, then that leads them to very different views of you know whether cosmopolitanism is something that endangers them in their status or not. I think very often – in thinking about these things, we we have to distinguish between the kind of rationalizations people offer for their responses and what they're really feeling. So it's it's a complicated but investigable empirical question. Who's losing what when we allow immigration of various kinds, whether it's um, immigration of highly skilled workers into Silicon Valley or of Mexicans to come and pick agricultural crops in various parts of the country. These are two. Uh, it's an it's an investigable question uh, whether anybody's uh, whether the net effect of that is bad overall, which I think the answer to that question is definitely no. But whether there aren't winners and losers here, to which the answer I think is probably less. Yes. So, um, yes, we ought to worry about that. Uh, it's part of the job of people thinking about public policy in the United States to care about uh, who loses in the United States. And to make sure that if um, if people do lose in the United States, we look after them, because we're we're a society of people who have a reasonable partiality for one another. We have special responsibilities to our fellow citizens. So I don't think there's anything wrong in arguing that you shouldn't allow immigration that's badly damaging to a group of people in your own society, unless either a it's fantastically good for the rest of us. In which case, B, you ought to be doing something to help the people who are losing. If, if we're going to create a system that allows for winners, we've got to look after the losers. And I think the big problem of the last 20 years in our country is that we've paid almost no attention to the losers in globalization and immigration, both of which have had enormous upsides for parts of our population. So they've been good for a lot of us, good for a lot of us because they're good for our pension funds, because there's money being made by companies that we've invested in uh, looking forward to our retirement. So um, it's reasonable to worry about those things. And it's reasonable to worry about something else too, which is that if it's important to sustain if the point of cosmopolitanism is that we're sustaining a world of diverse cultures, it's important for people to be allowed to maintain some control over how the collective control, not individual control, over how the culture around them develops. You're allowed to say, look, um, we've, uh, we want to shape our public culture by doing things in our education system, by doing things, by supporting the arts, by by limiting what people can do to the fronts of their houses on our street. I mean, there are lots of things that's reasonable, I think, for us to decide we want to do collectively. And among those things, I think, is to preserve some sense of sort of who we are. So those are all reasonable inputs to questions about immigration. And they're inputs that um, I think a cosmopolitan, precisely because she's a cosmopolitan, ought to be interested in. There are, however, duties in this area, and among the duties, I think, is the duty to respect um, asylum rights. So actually Kant said this in Perpetual Peace, which is one of the great cosmopolitan statements of the Enlightenment, that one of the, the fundamental duty we have to strangers is, is, to, is to protect them. Is not, and if somebody arrives on your border and says, I'm about to be killed uh, if I don't cross, you have a profound obligation to, to protect them. They don't have the right to stay indefinitely. Um, you have you can have reasonable policies about that. But but if somebody's in danger, they're owed protection. Of course, in the current debates about Syrian refugees, the question of who's actually in danger and where, and where which borders they ought to present themselves at, all of these are things that you know um, need to be thought about. I think collectively. I don't think individual nations can do a very good job of responding to this on their own. But that they have a right to to our care 
while they're seriously endangered, I think ought to be a fundamental principle that we accept. I'd like to hold on the Syrian refugees here because help me think through individually. I'm neither a nation nor a, a collection of nations, but help me think through individually what the responsibilities implied here are to Syrian refugees. And, and I want to maybe frame the question more precisely. Let's say you believe his premises, one, that overwhelmingly the people of Syria are in danger. Overwhelmingly, the people who are trying to flee, that by the act of fleeing, how difficult that is just to do, that if you are leaving, that there is a good reason to believe that you are in danger given the death toll we have seen. Two, that America had a role in creating that danger. We had a role in both what we didn't do, but before that, um, with the instability, we did help to create in the Middle East what we did do. And then finally, though, let's say that you do buy – and I, I don't know that I quite buy this. But let's say that you do buy that a large refugee program comes with some risk, particularly that it would make it easier for uh, foreign terrorist groups to sneak people into the US who mean us harm. Now, let's say that I am somebody who is undecided on this question and, and I do think this is one of the, the truly difficult questions of the past couple of years. How do I reason through what my responsibility, what my country's responsibility is to these people? I think um, this is an area in which individual responsibility is very limited uh, because individual capacity is very limited. I can't even invite a refugee family here unless the government lets them in. Uh, so, so I think the task of individuals here is to think through what policies they ought to support, what they ought to be urging their government and then urging their government to urge other governments to be doing. So that's where I start. I start with that. Now, there's a lot of sort of complicated empirical questions here about what's uh, what would be helpful. I do think it's relevant, as you suggested in your second premise, that we're partly to blame for some of the instability that eventually produced the um, ISIL, ISIS, whatever you want to call it, uh, situation, which is one of the major reasons why there's a problem in Syria and why so many people are facing um, suffering and death. So I think, uh, as Colin Powell used to say, if you break it, to some extent, it's yours and you do need to take special responsibility so that we have a responsibility that the Ghanaians and the South Africans don't have. We also have capacities that the Ghanaians and the South Africans don't have and it's relevant to what your duties are or what you should do or what you can do. And we're particularly well placed to do things. Um, so the part of the problem is your third uh, assumption, which you said you weren't sure about. I'm not sure about it either. But suppose it's true. Suppose it's true that there's some risk of uh, allowing in um, dangerous people in a flood of refugees. Um, well, first, it's very unusual for a policy to have only upside and no cost. So you must always... Uh, be... But you have to pretend that all policies only do. <laughs> well, I know. It's part of the bizarre <laughs> way in which we talk about almost everything in this society uh, that we, we, <laughs> we, we never talk about trade-offs. Look, on the one hand, saving the lives of, say... Thousands of people. On the other hand, the small risk that a few people will get in and some of them will do some harm, maybe even kill some people. But how many people? I mean, we can't uh, – we're losing tens of thousands of people a year, hundreds of thousands perhaps, on the roads. As far as I know, nobody thinks that that means we should uh, stop uh, – we should close down the highways. So I think you, you, you have to bear this – you have to sort of balance these things out. And if there's a huge benefit – and a small risk, then you you can you can go ahead. Um, we have not been the victims of a huge amount of terror in the United States. Uh, not not many. I mean, it's too many. One is too many. But we've basically lost a few thousand people over the last ten twenty years within within our territory, and um, and some of them were killed. Many of them were killed by people who were born here. So stopping immigration wasn't going to help. And many of them were not killed by Muslim terrorists, but by pe people with various other kinds of political persuasions. And again, you could close down all the right wing websites, I suppose, uh, on the grounds that it might be the case that somebody on one of those websites might shoot somebody. Um, but in that case, too, we don't we, we 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 calibrate. We think, on the one hand, the importance of freedom of expression; on the other hand, the small risk that this free expression will lead to bad behaviour, and we decide that we're willing to pay the cost. So, um, we need a reasonable evaluation of what the risks are. 
And I would say the largest costs of allowing significantly more Syrian refugees to come in would be social and economic costs. I mean, you, you have to you have to integrate people, you have to feed them, house them, uh, uh, educate them so they can learn a local language, so that they can pursue decent lives here while they're waiting to go home. Um, those are costs that I think it's reasonable to take into account as well. But again, we're a rich country, and um, and those costs seem to me manageable. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So I want to talk about the the difference, the appreciation of difference dimension of of cosmopolitanism because I think this is what – sets your book on this and theories on this uh, apart from how people typically think about it. I think when the word cosmopolitan is used in in normal parlance, it's actually used to describe somebody who appreciates a kind of same-same, somebody who has found a global community that might exist in London and New York and Hong Kong and Rio de Janeiro and different places, but would find themselves completely uh, adrift in even rural America, right, would find that to be a much more foreign foreign nation to them. And one of the the interesting questions that I, I think your book brings up, and you were talking about this glancingly as a cost around around refugee resettlement, but we can talk about it in a, in a less charged atmosphere, is a cost people see with immigration, a cost people see even with just kinds of admitted difference within a nation, is that perhaps that difference weakens you. Perhaps that difference – people do not like pressing one for English. It, it upsets them. Um, people do not like seeing communities that they do not feel themselves to be a part of. They're driving you know, through their cities and they see a place where it just it doesn't seem open to them. Their language isn't spoken. Their foods aren't served. And that feels to them like a diminishment of the American character. Um, I don't want to I'm, – I'm saying this from memory so I don't want to get the exact quote wrong. But there was a Republican congressman recently who said we were not going to rebuild American strength um, without white children. So what is it in difference that delivers strength? What is it in difference and, and how should – a cosmopolitan think about uh, what is good in difference and also what can begin to undermine the strength and unity of a polity. So I'm not a big fan of strength as a political argument because we're fantastically strong. We're one of the strongest nations in the history of the world. Strength is not our problem. Our problem is a lack of solidarity. Our problem is that too many Americans think of other Americans as somehow not their problem or even worse, as their problem. And so they uh, they won't uh, support policies that are aimed at the betterment of the lives of fellow citizens, which is sort of what the point of being together as a polity is. The point of being together as a polity is to create a context in which all of us can lead free lives and productive lives together, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness together. So when people worry about the diversity of the United States as a source of 
uh, weakness, um, the kind of weakness that they're talking about is not the kind of weakness that makes it difficult to resist a, an attack by a foreigner or um, or that makes your economy uh, weaker than others. It's the kind of uh, it's a kind of political weakness that comes from a lack of solidarity. And we are a very divided society at the moment. We're divided along lines more important than the line between cosmopolitans and non-cosmopolitans. But we are very divided. So the question is, can a society, which is relatively diverse as ours is, can it generate solidarity? Can it, uh, can it work together in order to make things better for other people? And here, I think, the cosmopolitan spirit is a useful one because we're already pretty uh, diverse by historical standards. Um, cities have always been pretty um, mixed up, uh, multicultural, multilinguistic places. That was that was true already with Rome in the first century, but it's been true in it was true in Venice in the Renaissance. It's true in London in the nineteenth century. It's true in New York and Hong Kong and the other places you mentioned now. And and on the whole, those places are productive, successful places. Hong Kong is a very productive and successful place, even though. It's got people who it's 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 got a sort of governing effective governing language in English, and most of the people don't speak English, uh, and lots of people speak other languages. But if you go around on the streets of Hong Kong, you'll hear a lot of uh, Filipinos uh, speaking, uh, as well as people speaking uh, English, Cantonese, and so on. Uh, and the same is true in New York. So it looks like these very mixed up places can, in fact, be economically productive. Can be. Relatively peaceful. We have pretty. We have, by United States standards, rather low levels of violent crime in the United in, in New York City. So I think we can uh, imagine that it's not the problem of being all mixed up that's that's generating the lack of solidarity. Because again, uh, I live in New York City. I feel it as a pretty solidaristic place, as a place where people, in fact, get along. They're civil to one another. Uh, we we're all crushed together in the subway, but it all works fine. Uh, it doesn't work any worse than it does in Japan, where they're all the same. So I think uh, the thought that there's a reasonable anxiety about difference is, again, a kind of um, – it's not that the lives of the people driving through the, the neighborhoods where everybody seems to be speaking Spanish, the English speaking, the Anglophones doing that. It's not that their lives are actually endangered or threatened by those things. It's that they don't like the idea of the country being this uh, – complicated place. And they would prefer to be able to think of the United States as um, uh, Christian, uh, white, and Anglophone, and, um, and conservative. And the answer to that is that if you want to live in a country like that, you can't start from here. There's no way to get there that isn't horrendously disturbing. I mean, what would it take? You'd have to kick out... Uh, the 13% of the population that's black, you'd have to kick out another quarter of the population that comes from Latin America and, uh, and countries to the south. If you want to be Protestant, you have to destroy the largest Christian denomination in the United States, which is the Catholics, and so on. I mean, we, we can't do that. This isn't who we are. And, and the reason we've been a successful country, I think it's plausible to say, is precisely because we aren't that. And the source, the strength that does come from diversity is, is shown in the fact that it's our, that we get lots of, um, uh, science prizes from our from uh, first generation immigrant children that we that our Nobel laureates come from our American Nobel laureates were born all around the world um, that the ideas that fuel our businesses and so on come from everywhere and they come from everywhere because they come with people from everywhere so we're strengthened economically and technologically and imaginatively by people from other places coming in and if you don't want to read the novels of immigrant people to the United States. You don't have to. Um, if you don't want to be involved in the kind of technological innovation that involves interaction with uh, people from other places, you don't have to. Uh, as I said at the start, you're entitled to live the way the Amish want to live. You're entitled in the United States to, to wall yourself off and create communities uh, which don't want to deal with others. That's, that's one of your rights too. But we wouldn't survive as a nation if everybody wanted to be like the Amish. How do you manage the the question of when difference is something to be appreciated and respected and thought of as an as an interesting facet of human uh, diversity, and when it's something to be pushed and changed? I think a, a a challenge people could reasonably have listening to this would be to say, all right, when I think of the people I know who are cosmopolitans, they are much more appreciative of how interesting it is 
uh, to live in a traditional society like Egypt, then they are accepting of someone in Missouri who does not want to bake a cake for a gay couple being married. And that there is an appreciation of difference that is quite different and a rejection of difference that is quite near, that is not as different, that is within the society. So when is difference something to marvel at and something to learn from? And when is it something that should be challenged and should be pushed and should be part of a, a contentious debate? I think the challenge, uh, the right way to challenge it is to start with the first part of cosmopolitanism, which is the universalist part, and to ask what are the fundamental moral obligations we have to one another. I'm not interested in sustaining the part of uh, Egyptian diversity that consists in people who want to uh, kill Copts. Uh, there, there's two different issues here. One is what we can do and the other is what we should do. What we can do is very difficult in Egypt. There's not much you and I and the United States government can do to change the attitudes of people in Egypt who want to kill Copts. But we can certainly condemn it when it happens and urge the government of Egypt uh, to, to try and uh, change the situation with respect to that. On the question of what we should do, though, I think the answer is we should be in conversation with one another about the things we disagree about, just the moral things we disagree about, just as we should be in conversation about the things that are mutually interesting. All around the world today, people are talking to one another within and across societies about soccer. Um, they're building relationships around those conversations. And in those conversations, it can come up that somebody shouted a gay slur at a Spanish soccer match uh, or an English soccer match. Um, or that a Russian team uh, engaged in um, – I mean, a group of, group of fans engaged in anti-Semitic or anti-Arab chants at a Dutch game. In those contexts, I think cosmopolitans like all decent people should be uh, making the arguments for what they think is correct. So um, the, the reason why people are worried about the, the Missouri cake – was it Missouri? Uh, in my example, but I don't know. I don't I, – I, do not remember where the actual okay. issue was. Um, but, uh, anyway. I'm not trying to say anything about Missouri. No, no. It's a fine state, I'm sure. The reason people are worried about people who won't make cakes for people uh, is because um, it's not clear to them that that's a morally appropriate attitude. Um, now, the reason why I think that's uh, something we need to be careful about is is in the area of what we can do. Um, most people in the United States 30 years ago would have thought it was fine not just to refuse to bake a cake for a gay couple, but to uh, would have thought it was fine to condemn them, to abuse them, uh, probably to criminalize their sexual behavior and so on. I mean, we've changed enormously in our attitudes to these things in the time that I've lived in the United States. So first of all, we should remember that. We should remember that these people are not morally remote from us, they're, they're people who's, who are thinking things that, that we and if you're um, younger than me, our parents, were thinking uh, not so long ago. I like to remind my students that when I was a teenager, my parents' marriage was illegal in the state of Virginia. That's why the Lovings had to go to the Supreme Court. That's very recent. And so a lot of these attitudes come, they're not, they're not, I mean, they're, People who don't want to uh, make cakes for gay couples refer to a very ancient set of books. They refer to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But the attitudes that they're expressing have nothing to do, not nothing very much to do with Leviticus and Deuteronomy. They're attitudes that were present in the United States widely just a generation ago. You don't have to go back to ancient times. So I think we should be um, respectful of the fact that the, some of these people have sincerely held, though in my view mistaken, beliefs about uh, the moral standing of gay people. Um, and if they were willing to talk, I think it would be useful to engage in conversation with them. One of the things I favor is conversation across differences. Is um, I like talking to Catholics. I'm not a Catholic, never been a Catholic, uh, but I kind of like talking to Catholics about all sorts of questions because they have a complicated tradition with lots of thought in it. I like talking to rabbis about things. I've never been Jewish, but I like talking to rabbis because rabbis have complicated, elaborate apparatus for thinking about the moral world, which is different from mine and which leads sometimes to the same conclusions and sometimes to different ones. And, and another part of the cosmopolitan picture, I think, is a kind of thought that one of the reasons why these, what John Stuart Mill called experiments of living, these different ways of going on are worth it, is because we can't be sure that we're right about many things. We need to be tolerant and open to the possibility of our own 
error. Not unserious about our views. We hold the views we do. But we should be attentive to the possibility that we're wrong. And one way to find out whether you're right or wrong is to engage in conversation with people who disagree with you. So I think it's um, – uh, it's, I mean, I think it's wrong to deny respect to to the loving choices of human beings about their partnerships. I think that's profoundly wrong. But people do it for reasons that are intelligible to me. And, um, and I'm willing to talk to them about it. I think that actually if we go through Leviticus and Deuteronomy together, and I was raised as a Christian, I can tell you why I don't think it follows from those te- reading those texts in a sensible way that you should deny uh, you should be unwilling to make a cake for a gay couple. But um, as I say, uh, that doesn't mean I don't think they're wrong, it, uh, just as I think it's wrong to burn cops, or though I think that's obviously worse, uh, or, to, um, or to deny women the right to appear in public with their faces uncovered. Those are things that I think are wrong. But, and this is more on the side of what we can do, the way you move forward on these things isn't by uh, condemnation and insult and, and slurs. It's by respectful conversation, I think. You have a very nice section in the book where you talk about the ways in which human beings evolved in small tribes. And so much of what we think of as a rationality and an enlightenment mentality built to just find the truth, it's really built to help us prosper in the in these small groups where our standing is very important. And you write that – we're now in this world where each person you know about and can affect is someone to whom you have responsibilities. The challenge then is to take minds and hearts formed over the long millennia of living in local troops and equip them with ideas and institutions that allow us to live together as a global tribe we have become. This feels very hard to me. This feels as a challenge we have in the past 50 or 70 years uh, become much, 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 much more of a global community. We are continuously faced with each other. Uh, with brains that are not always all that well equipped to understand what it is we are seeing when the latest piece of news flashes across Twitter, with brains that are not always equipped to know how to handle these people who are not of your tribe but are somehow all of a sudden in your face all of the time. There is a question of what is the right moral framework, but there's also the question of what is the right moral hardware. And and I'm curious how you think about upgrading that hardware, working on it, at least being aware of it. How do you think about the, the sub-rational piece of all this? Well, I think it's it's hugely important. And, you know, a lot of moral life is not about doing things. It's about feeling things. It's about responding emotionally in the right way. And the way we respond emotionally is one of the things that, you know, we're, is sort of pretty hardwired. It's, it's, it's culturally shaped, but it's pretty hardwired. So I don't know. In a way, I think the most amazing thing about us as a species, if I wanted to pick one thing to tell to the Martians, it's that we did evolve in these small groups and we've taken a psychology that was designed for that and used it to live in countries with tens of hundreds of millions, two cases, a couple of billion people. And some of it works. That is to say, you can get Chinese, hundreds of millions of them, very riled up about Chineseness, even though it would take many, many, many human lifetimes just to meet all the Chinese, let alone to interact with them in a sensible way. Our identities, which were shaped, uh, our identity-forming mechanisms, the parts of our uh, equipment, our moral equipment uh, that have to do with identity, turned out to be usable, not just for the troops, not just for one or two hundred people, but for uh, vast empires. So um, when, when, um, when St. Paul said, Kiwis Romanus Sum, I'm a Roman citizen, he was talking about a property that he shared with tens of millions of people. And Rome itself at that point had, uh, had a million people in it. And yet, it, and yet they all thought of themselves as Romans. A million people can't know each other. And yet they all thought of themselves as Romans. So one thing I know about our equipment is that it allows us to generate forms of solidarity with strangers because the whole point about national solidarity, the whole point about the solidarity of the Romans in the first century um, is that it was solidarity among strangers. They literally didn't know one another, but they felt bound together by this sense of being all Romans. Um, uh, the, the, the more than a billion, nearly two billion Catholics in the world are bound together by the sense of themselves as being Catholics and so on. So we can do affiliation on a grand scale with the equipment that we've got. We know we can because we do. The challenge, I think, is this. One of the main mechanisms by which this form of solidarity is generated is by 
opposition to otherness. It's by opposition to the – it's Catholics against Protestants. I don't mean that all Catholics are thinking like that all the time, but the fact is that some of Catholic solidarity is going to come from thinking of yourself as not being um, un, not Christian and also not being un-Catholic, not being Protestant. And a lot of, you know, uh, Americanness is going to be about um, not being foreign, not being uh, Russian, not being Mexican, maybe not, even not being Canadian, though that doesn't seem to figure very much in people's thoughts. Um, so I think, uh, and, and that, of course, there's a challenge there, because if you're, um, if you're thinking that, that, that you, you can do group solidarity on a large scale, but it always requires an outside, then the one scale at which you can't do group solidarity is the species as a whole, because there isn't an outside, there isn't somebody to be against. That's a serious problem, I think, for mobilizing the psychology we have. I think it's genuinely true that, that sort of not being other is part of what generates a lot of the large forms of collective solidarity. I'd say two things, though, that can help us here. One is um, you don't need the level of humanity in order to engage in solidarity. That's what the point of the Catholic example shows. The Catholic shows that you can be uh, in solidarity with people in the Philippines and Latin America and Chicago and Rome, and that that can be a powerful form of solidarity, Catholicism, ev even though it crosses vast areas and boundaries. So we don't need always to look to humanity as the scale at which we operate. I think morally we do, but emotionally, you only need a connection with someone. And, um, you know, I'm a philosopher. Uh, I have this connection with people in every country in the world that we're philosophers. And it's amazing. You, you, if you go to an international convention, Congress of Philosophers, it's kind of amazing that people who come from all these different traditions, Confucian traditions, the Sanskritic traditions, the traditions that grow out of Greece and, um, and Rome, and also modern liberal traditions, we can all somehow, we've got this thing that we're doing, we can interact with one another in, in highly productive ways. So I would say, it's hard to – until the aliens arrive and we have an outside, a non-human outside uh, to be solidaristic uh, against, we have a problem about the species as the level of uh, solidarity. But we know we can have very large-scale solidarities on the scale of hundreds of millions uh, because we have national solidarities that are on that scale already. You brought up the, the question of identity and you recently gave a speech that was broadcast on the BBC that, that was heavily on this topic and you said in it that – how race works uh, is actually pretty local and specific and what it means to be black in New York is completely different from what it means to be black in Accra or even in London. And yet people believe it means roughly the same thing everywhere. Race does nothing for us. And you said that I think that in the long run if everybody grasped the facts about the relevant biology and the social facts, they'd have to treat race in a different way and stop using it to define themselves in this way. Tell me a bit about your thinking uh, about identity here. We've talked about how people should think about other people's identities. But how should we think about our own? So I think uh, th there's, there's, a, there's a puzzle here, which is that this way of thinking about identity is relatively new. And yet what I'm going to say is it's been true all along. So it's a puzzle about why we haven't sort of reflected on it. And that's an interesting intellectual historical question. But human beings have always had among the culturally available resources for developing their individual lives a bundle of social identities that they can use for that purpose. Gender is a universal, that is to say, it's differently shaped in different places, but there's always something that takes the sexual body and turns it into a social identity, something way beyond what is determined by the mere facts of, of human uh, sexual biology. Um, there are professional identities in most societies of above the most simple societies. Uh, there are, there are. Uh, if you're going to be an ironsmith in Senegambia, uh, you belong to a complicated guild which is governed by taboos and customs and so on. And all of these things mean that when you choose to go follow your father into iron to being an ironsmith, you have a bunch of things that you're buying into. Three important things. One, there are ways of recognizing people of social identities. So you will be seen as, by people in your own society, you'll be seen as an ironsmith, uh, a, a man, a woman, whatever. Uh, second, uh, the, the, the identity will come with ideas about how people of that kind ought to behave. That's what gender is. It's a set of uh, 
conceptions of how people with a certain kind of sexual body should behave as opposed to people with a different kind of sexual body. And those will be useful for you. I mean, I like to tell my students, look, there's nothing bad for me about the fact that when I go into a store, I know that a clothing store, I know that I know which part I'm supposed to go to. I go to the part where the men's clothes are because I like to dress as a man. Uh, useful to me. I don't have to think as I would in a society without views about that. Um, uh, uh, you know, shall I, how shall I dress today? Um, very simple example, but there are lots of more complex examples uh, which come with, as I said, with professional identities, with identities like novelist and so on. These are all identities that are useful for people in making their lives. And ethnic and racial identities uh, in many societies are among these tools for making your life. You, 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 you have these, what I call them, sort of, you have these thoughts about identity, have these thoughts about how people of a certain identity ought to behave, and those thoughts help you, guide you in making your life. So there's nothing bad about identity as such. What's bad, I think, is when the picture that goes with an identity, the picture that is used to assign identities to people and that people use to assign identities to themselves, is got something badly wrong about human nature built into it. That's, that's a problem. Another problem is that I think that we can be prone to take identities seriously in contexts where they're not really relevant. It's not really relevant uh, when you're doing surgery what race or gender you are as, as a surgeon. And taking it into account is a kind of irrelevance and a distraction, though it happens. Um, and I think also we can be over-solidaristic. We can be too inclined to, to identify with the interests of people of our own identity and not sufficiently inclined to respect the interests of people of other identities so that one identity can sort of take you over uh, rather than recognizing that you have many and that you have connections with the people who don't share your racial identity, say, as well as uh, things that divide you from them. So I think there are many things you can do wrong with identity, but we should start, I think, with recognizing that it's, it's a useful and natural part of of the repertoire of socially available resources for making a human life. So there's been a, a debate in philosophy recently uh, over an article by Rebecca Duvel, who wrote a piece called In Defense of Transracialism, mm -hmm. who made a, a, an extended analogy to transgender questions, but, but was basically saying that if you believe identity should be fluid, if you believe these facts do not matter and there should be a real element of choice, then why should it not go both ways? Why cannot a white person say, actually, I, I identify as someone who's not white any longer? I'm curious what you've thought of that. It's created a real furor. Um, I haven't followed the, the, the debate, the specific debate, um, though it does look to me as though um, people have responded to a, an astonishingly excessive degree in their criticism of this person. It's the task of philosophers to think thoughts that are uh, challenging and difficult. And I think by piling on to an individual because she's done so is, is sort of unphilosophical. And I think that's a, a very unattractive feature of, what, of the little I've gathered about this. Um, but look, social identities, I said, are socially provided. That means that they're created by all of us. I didn't make up masculinity. I didn't make up Methodism, which is what I was baptized into, or Anglicanism in which I was raised. So they don't belong to anybody, any one person. And so you don't have the right, as it were, to declare yourself free of the prevailing cultural understandings. You have the right in discourse to challenge them. And that's what trans people have done successfully. They took a set of, of, um, of, of, of understandings of gender and they challenged them successfully over a generation. And now we've come to, I have and you have, I'm sure, and lots of other people have and uh, I hope eventually everybody will, come to accept that that way of shaping understanding gender was, um, was unhelpful to these people and that we can adjust our understandings of gender in a way that allows these people to participate, trans people to participate more uh, naturally and actively in our social lives without, without uh, disrespect. And so that's progress. Um, but it was done by challenging existing cultural. It wasn't done by, as it were, slipping in under the under the tent and pretending that the, the cultural understandings were different from what they are. So on the racial side, the work has not been done. It's just not the case that you uh, that anyone has made the argument and been successful that racial identities are purely a matter of subjective uh, 
judgment, and that therefore if you have two white parents, biological parents who were raised by them, you should be free nevertheless to declare yourself to be black and mutatis mutandis for all the other cases. The reason that cultural work hasn't been done is because I think if you started doing that cultural work, it would make it clear that the current cultural understanding of race is still predicated on ideas that are a little bit crazy and that come from the history of the way race developed in the United States, uh, which was as part of the slave system. And so it's part of that understanding that um, that Barack Obama gets to be a black person even though he has a white mother. Uh, uh, now, th that's challenged by some people. I, none of this is totally uncontroversial. Everybody, there, there are disagreements about these things. But the normal social understanding is that there's nothing weird about Barack Obama thinking of himself as black as opposed to mixed race. So given that that is the cultural understanding, presenting yourself as a black person uh, when you've got two white parents and you, and you were raised by them uh, is um, is is misleading because uh, if you haven't challenged the cultural understanding, people will assume things about you reasonably that are false, and that's uh, that's sort of not good in social life. We need to we need to uh, we, we we need to be honest with one another and not to take advantage of these sorts of things. Now, people will say correctly that um, what I'm saying about this might be different from what we might feel about the old forms of racial passing that African-Americans engaged in, uh, light-skinned African-Americans engaged in when there was a lot more racism in our society. Well, that's a different case. That's a case where uh, they were uh, concealing something from other people who were going to use it against them, who were going to um, abuse them, who were going to discriminate against them, who were going to deny them jobs and opportunities. And that's why the African-American community on the whole has been historically pretty tolerant of passers. You might think of them you might think that they were betraying the community, but actually uh, passing only works if the African-American community goes along with it. They let you get away with it because they understand what was going on. That's a different case. I think the case of a white person in the United States today who, who wants to um, uh, pass for black uh, doesn't have that kind of rationale. So I'm all up for discussion about this. I'm all up for debate about uh, whether racial identities should be more subjective in our current cultural understanding. But in our current cultural understanding, I think it's just misleading to present yourself as a black person if your um, parents are white and you were raised by them. So you've been doing a fascinating kind of applied ethical philosophy recently. You're, you're now the ethicist uh, at the New York Times. <laughs> yes. I am curious what you have learned from doing that, what you have learned from the daily practice of hearing people's problems and, and trying to help them reason through them in a rigorous framework. One of the things that I was surprised by is how much of what people write to me about has to do with questions of what you can say, uh, uh, questions about confidentiality, secrets, uh, questions about intervening in situations, that, uh, verbally in situations that are not close to you, but you see something bad happening, should you speak up and so on. If I had to guess in advance, I wouldn't have guessed that so much of the questions would have been about that. Um, there, I think that the sort of apparatus of technical moral philosophy is useful because there are, uh, you can distinguish between uh, questions about what the consequences will be of what of an intervention, what the duties you owe to people in general are, and what the special responsibilities you have are to people with whom you have relationships and the special responsibility you have to people with whom you have understandings, deals. You, they told you something on condition of confidentiality. Um, that's what I just said. All that just brings in a bunch of things that you know you would learn in a intro ethics course about how to think about these things. I probably would have learned more if I had read the comments and the tweets, but I've decided not to read those because the average one, when I did look at them, was so unhelpful. Uh, but I decided that I was just going to have to stop uh, reading them all. Uh, so, uh, so to those of you who 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 write the unhelpful tweets, you're stopping me reading the, help, <laughs> the helpful ones. And to those of you who write the the foolish comments, you're stopping me from reading the the helpful ones. I would say this is a universal Twitter issue. Yes, actually. yes, it is. And I and I think it's very hard to figure out what you can do about it. I mean, and you, common issue. It's not just Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Right. No, no. I mean, I, I agree that. Uh, um, there's a there's a problem which is that in in sort of democratizing our discourse, we lose the distinction between people who have 
prepared for the discourse and people who haven't, people who've thought about it and people who haven't, and there are people who just sort of sound off. And it's hard to figure out how to get out of the noise of the people who are sounding off the useful stuff from the the, the, the thoughtful people out there who are who are making a contribution. So was there a ethicist problem you've been given that has stuck with you, that 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 you have found your own answer unsatisfying or just whether there was an answer unsatisfying? Has it has it exposed you to something morally that has left you troubled? I think the hardest questions in terms of my, as it were, gut have, have been the ones which have to do with um, how individuals who respond to uh, illegal migrants, uh, people, undocumented uh, aliens and so on, people who have overstayed visas or who entered the country illegally because um, there are pressures in two directions. I'm in favor of respecting reasonable laws. I don't think people should overstay visas. If they have an asylum problem, they should apply for asylum. They shouldn't just overstay a visa. And you shouldn't enter countries uh, illegally. You shouldn't dig under, under fences or, <laughs> or, uh, or break across borders, I don't think. Again, you know, modulo the problem of asylum. So, but on the other hand, once people have been here for a while, their lives are here. They're kind of invested in, in uh, socially invested here. They're often contributing. Uh, and also they would be profoundly disturbed in their lives by being kicked out. And I think there's sort of just countervailing pressures there, which show up in the, in the reasonable parts of the immigration debate because there are people who, who insist that it's important to keep the law, and I agree with that. And there are people who say, but nevertheless, these are people in our community. They're here. They're useful. They're interconnected. They have. They often have children who are citizens, um, and so simply kicking them out seems cruel uh, and, and excessive. And I, I think, in particular cases, maybe I see my way through. Um, I don't see there's any harm in helping stop people, um, helping by informing on people who. If you know that they're about to try and enter the United States illegally, I think that's okay because they haven't yet got the investments here that weigh on the other side, the, the cultural and social investments. Um, but I think if people have been here a long time, I would favor uh, both a practice, an individual practice and a policy of, of naturalizing them and, and legalizing them and documenting them. Let me ask you about an ethical question that has been on the minds of a lot of people in D.C. recently. So there are many people who work in the current presidential administration who believe the the man they work for is not well-balanced, who worry that the administration is not doing a good job, is not behaving ethically, is not uh, ultimately doing things that are acting in a positive way. And many of them are staff uh, and they struggle pretty routinely with the question of should I be here to try to prevent bad things from happening, to try to make things be a little bit better, even at the cost of then being complicit in bad things that do happen, even at the cost of having to carry rationales and make arguments and participate in projects that I'm not 100 percent comfortable with? Or should I resign knowing that that means the person who replaces me may be worse? Uh, this uh, I can say for a fact is is something that a lot of people are are struggling with. What would you advise them? Well, I do think that both. Uh, I'm going to sound wishy washy, but um, I think both kinds of consideration are important. I mean, on the one hand, this is our country and our government. It's not Mr. Trump's country or Mr. Trump's government, and it's governed by laws. And if you occupy a public position. Uh, you, you have, there are things you're supposed to do within the law uh, that if you accept the job, you have to, you have to accept, I think. And um, I think that the government uh, should contain, uh, in, in a democratic society, should contain people who work for the government, though they disagree with the policies of the administration. Otherwise, we'd have to um, you know, empty out the government every every four or eight years, and I think that would be uh, a inconsistent with the democratic idea that we're doing all this together. It's it's, it's our common republic. It's not just the republic of the institute of the party in power. Uh, and B, of course, fantastically ineffective and inefficient. It would make government uh, work uh, less well. 
So I think there's there's an argument for staying in, which is and doing your job conscientiously. Part of the job of a conscientious official is to make arguments against uh, policies that they've been asked to carry out if, if it's their job to advise, to give genuine advice. And, um, and so they should do that. On the other hand, I think some strategic resignations uh, might be effective. They might draw attention to problems. So I don't think the idea uh, – one of the points about offices, one of the points about um, uh, the, the, the moral – creation of these roles is that you are not complicit when you do your job. You're doing your job. When a judge gives a sentence required by federal law, she's not complicit in, uh, in the wrongness of the, of the sentencing guideline, right? She can even say, I don't think this is the right sentence, but the law requires me to do it, and so I'm going to do what the law requires. Um, and uh, you shouldn't hold people morally responsible for that unless it's Nazi Germany or, or Soviet, uh, Soviet Russia or somewhere where, where I think the right thing obviously is to pull out as fast as you can from the government. But so I think it's OK to stick in, to try to do your job conscientiously, to make conscientiously the arguments against the policies that you think are wrong. And I would distinguish here between policies that are morally wrong and policies that you just think are bad policies. Obviously, the, the latter can shade into the former. But disagreement about policy strikes me as the sort of thing uh, you're, not, um, you're not complicit in the bad thinking of behind a bad policy if you apply it because it's your job. But I think if, uh, if you're being asked to do something you think is quite immoral or seriously immoral, you should certainly make the arguments against it. And if it's bad enough, yes, there's going to be a point, morally bad enough, I don't mean policy bad enough, uh, then it may be a point where you you think, well, I ought to pull out of this in order to draw attention to the wrongness of it. But but I think pulling out, as it were, just to protect your own moral soul, uh, verges on the narcissistic. <laughs> I think it's important that we have a government that's run by citizens who uh, respect the legal obligations to carry out the demands of their job, but understand that they will be as civil servants required to do things that they don't agree with. And provided they're not seriously immoral, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So this conversation has been a, a, a real pleasure. I want to ask you the question we used to, to end this podcast, which is what are three books in your area of expertise or, or beyond that you've read that, that matter to you and that you would recommend to the audience? Three books. Um, gosh, the books, the sort of books that leap to my mind are, are might not be uh, the sort of books that that that, that everybody in the audience would enjoy, That's okay. would enjoy reading. It I mean, niche. I'm, I'm I'm a big fan um, of um, of a very of an early twentieth century book called The Philosophy of the As If by Hans Weyinger which is about the many ways in which in our lives we use uh, fictions and, uh, and untruths in order to guide ourselves along and, and why that's inevitable. I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of our current discussion about, these, uh, about truth and untruth in, in, in political discourse is, uh, would be richer if we recognized that there is a place for hyperbole, uh, understatement and and simplification in talking about things, and there's a difference between um, between um, between f using fictions on the one hand and straight out trying to uh, confuse and uh, deceive people on the other. So I've got a book coming out this summer, which is called As If, which follows up on Vyinger, but I think the Vyinger is worth uh, worth looking at. Um, on its own, it's it's a pretty clear book, and and it's wonderful because it covers a whole range of cases: law, science, and so on. Second book, um, if if I'm recommending books to people, I tend not to recommend philosophy books. I tend to recommend novels. <laughs> and uh, if you haven't yet read uh, Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart, I recommend that. It's a great African novel, perhaps perhaps the greatest. You have a lovely New York Review of Books piece about that. Yes, this yes. week I think. Yes. Because they've just published um, – Penguin Classics is about to bring out all three of his, his novels about this village over, over a century. Um, 
in a single volume. And, um, and so I, I've written about that. And I, but I do think it's a wonderful novel. And I think it, this is cosmopolitanism for you. I mean, I think for Americans, it's really interesting to read about a place and time a little bit remote uh, in West Africa in the, uh, at the turn of the 20th century and to think about what it was like to interact with European colonization and the arrival of Christianity if you were a sort of strong-minded uh, traditional person in that society. So so I, I strongly commend that novel to people. Third thing, I think I would say um, that you should uh, – everybody uh, who is a reader should make sure they read some poetry sometime. Uh, almost any good poetry, <laughs> I think, uh, is is helpful in thinking about our lives um, I'm a big fan of somebody who is not much read as a poet anymore, uh, Thomas Hardy, who's remembered as a novelist, who has, I think, some wonderful poems. Uh, I find some of his poems about aging, as I age, uh, very helpful and moving. So I would say just pick an anthology of, of Thomas Hardy poems. Um, I know that sounds like a really weird three set of books, but, uh, but those are three kinds of books that have mattered a lot to me. Dr. Anthony Appiah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Anthony Appiah. This was a, a fun conversation. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you to my producers, Miles Ewell and Bert Pinkerton. The Ezra Klein Show is on the Vox Media Podcast Network, and we'll be back next week. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.